When you think of, you know, cutting down and dieting and you're decreasing calories, you know, our metabolism is very adaptable. It's going to depress as a natural result of that lower intake. The reverse is true as well. Like if you start increasing your intake, your metabolism is going to improve as well. And then you're going to be in a better position to add more lean muscle tissue while being in a caloric surplus. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host, Seam Lund, and our guest today is Robert Sykes. Robert is a natural ketogenic bodybuilder, entrepreneur, and coach. He's now published a book called Ketogenic Bodybuilding. This episode is brought to you by Bon Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. My favorite light and sleep composition companies, Blue Blocks, has rebranded themselves as Bon Charge. They're now involved with a huge range of evidence-based products to improve your wellness and life in every way. Their extensive range of premium wellness products helps you to sleep better, perform better, have more energy, recover faster, balance your hormones, and reduce inflammation. My favorites are their red light light bulbs because they can be used to create a melatonin-friendly environment in your bedroom by shining only red and not blue or green light waves that will reduce your sleep quality. After starting to use these red light light bulbs, I find it much easier to fall asleep and feel less awake before bed. If you want to try out these amazing products that are the cornerstones to my most optimal sleep, then head over to bondcharge.com forward slash seamlund and use the code seam15 to save 15%. Robert, welcome back to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's been like, you know, I've known or we've known each other probably online for maybe like four years or something like that. And uh, back first, yeah, like I think you and I were probably the first people who started talk about like keto and uh, bodybuilding and how can you do that? Uh, you have like an amazing journey or documented on your YouTube channel of how you like uh, went into shows as a keto bodybuilder and uh, actually won uh, some of them, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, that's where I first came across you. And you had, yeah, like I think you're probably the most knowledgeable person when it comes to ketogenic bodybuilding and uh, just, you know, natural bodybuilding in general. Uh, so, yeah, it's been just great to see your journey over the years, uh, starting your keto brick business and um, and uh, other brands. So, uh, yeah, I'm just you know glad to have you on the show again. Yeah, appreciate it, man. I mean, you go way back too, but like I remember when your book, Keto Bodybuilding, was on Amazon because I was looking for any type of bodybuilding on keto sources that I could find and yours popped up as one of the, the only ones really. So you've been in that space for quite some time. I guess we met in person for the first time at Metabolic Health Summit, I yeah. guess in like 2019, I guess that was. So it's been yeah, quite a while. Yeah, 2019, I think, yeah. <laughs> Crazy, man. Lots lots changed since then. Yeah. Uh, you And you recently published the book as well, which is called Ketogenic Bodybuilding. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, like I said, you're the best person when it comes to ketogenic bodybuilding. And uh, I think natural uh, contest prep, you also have it nailed down pretty much to like mastery levels. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to talk about all these different topics. Um, but uh, before we do that, like, you know, many, many people might not have heard or maybe they don't remember anymore about but uh, how did you you know stumble upon the keto diet and uh, like why did you choose to do bodybuilding uh, with keto which is kind of yeah. you know, not the conventional way <laughs> yeah so I started bodybuilding I guess back in like 2000 uh, I guess probably about 2008 or so is when I started bodybuilding and th I didn't this was not when I was doing keto like I was just the super small kid in high school I was 115 pounds scrawny, not a good look. And I tried to get bigger. So I got into bodybuilding. Um, and I was just reading magazines, Muslim fitness magazines, flex magazines, and following all the, you know, traditional wisdom in the sport, eating six or seven meals a day, lots of carbs, lots of rice, chicken, broccoli, that kind of deal. And it worked. I got lean. I bulked up Did my first show in 2014, uh, won the show, but I did it all the wrong way, man. Like I, I bulked up to 230 pounds, um, and then I cut down to 153. So I lost like 80 pounds roughly in the course of 12 weeks, lost a bunch of muscle in that process, and then developed a bunch of disordered eating tendencies and did that for like two or three years. And I realized that there just had to be a better way, which is kind of when I started dabbling into keto. And I was doing John Kiefer's carb backloading protocol at the time. Um, and he had uh, basically eat low glycemic index foods, basically keto during the day. And then at night, eat a bunch of really high carbohydrate uh, high glycemic index foods. And I felt better before the introduction of those carbs. So I did carb backloading minus the carbs, which is pretty much keto for the most part. And then uh, I think I, I stumbled upon uh, a podcast with Tim Ferriss and Dom Diagostino. I think that came out in like 2014 as well. And then from there, it's pretty much been strict keto for me all the way. Yeah. 
I also tried the car pack loading and uh, I think that's what I'm doing myself right now, mostly like uh, I'm not uh, keto, but uh, I do have, you know, the most carbs that I do eat would be uh, in the evening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do try to like limit the, like the carbohydrate intake around exercises. I think that that has been also the one of the best, best like, I don't know, strategies that I've used for both like, yeah, like mental performances, but the physical um, let's say body composition side as well. For so you're me. limiting your carbs around the workouts. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, I I usually if I do usually eat the carbs in the evening, then I'll have them. Uh, yeah, I'll usually like work out before that. Um, nice. On the do on the days that I don't work out, then I'll tend to stick to yeah like less carbs for sure. But I'm not like uh, keto probably. Uh, but at the same time, because I'm eating like you know one meal a day, I'm still probably in ketosis probably uh, at least some part of the day in the early earlier part a.m. So. You're looking super lean right now, man. So you're doing something right. Are you getting leaned out for that wedding or you got a show coming up? <laughs> no, no shows. Uh, I don't know. Like right now, I'm just feeling very, uh, I don't know. It's very, pretty easy to stay lean or I'm not trying to bulk, but probably yeah, like I'm not trying to add mass. So it's probably very easy to stick to maintenance, especially if you're eating one meal a day as well. So it's, yeah, not trying to like cut, not trying to bulk, just maintaining and just yeah. naturally kind of gravitates towards that, which is, I think is good good sign in that sense that you're not you know feeling that you're energy restricted while, while still being able to um be in a somewhat like a lower or a calorie maintenance intake without feeling that you need to like binge or uh over eat calories which i think yeah. is a kind of good hunger the hunger signals and leptins are leptin levels are probably like uh good yeah when you're able to do like an omad approach and you're able to maintain your weight and you know healthy composition and you're not really feeling super hungry or f super depleted, then then you're in a sweet spot for sure. I feel like, I mean, that's kind of like the the proxy for just a good baseline that I think. I mean, people should be able to intuitively eat, have a good nutritious meal once a day, and then be able to maintain healthy composition at that intake pretty effortlessly. Yeah, but let's talk about a little bit. <laughs> so this this is like a completely different level of leanness. Um, was this like this recent um, recently that you did, or was this like older photo? Uh, no, that was uh, so I did a, a prep in 2020 with the intention of competing. And then right before, like literally one week before my show, uh, the show got canceled because of COVID. Uh, so that picture was taken. I, I basically did a photo shoot instead of the show because the show got canceled. So that was taken, I believe, in April, May or April. I think April of 2017 was when that or 2020 rather was when that picture was taken. And then I'll compete again in uh, next year, 2023. So I normally take two or three years off in between shows. Um, so I'll probably start dieting down April of 2023 with the intention of competing in October and November of next year. Oh, nice. So you do take like longer breaks between the shows. Yeah. I feel like so many people, that's a big mistake, man. I feel, feel like people they'll, they'll compete. Then they'll do like a haphazard reverse diet and then they'll jump right back into another cut. And I mean, for me, like I'm taking four to six months worth of time to diet down, to get to that level of conditioning. Um, I'm being very strategic with that. I'm, I'm tapering my calories very slowly. And then I'll spend the next two or three months reverse dieting out of that to return to a healthy maintenance. And then, I mean, if you add that up, that's nine months of the year that I'm not in a surplus. So I'm not really maximizing my building potential. So if I go right back into another cut, I'm running the risk of looking worse the next time I stay, step on stage as opposed to better. So I'll typically take two or three years off between shows so that I could really have a legitimate building phase and put on some more lean tissue. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's... Also a lot of the mistakes even like regular people do who aren't dieting for shows that yeah. uh, they do like maybe achieve like uh top 10% body fat uh, or yeah, they maybe for or overweight people, they, yeah, like may reach their target uh, weight, but then they, you know, fall off the wagon for a little bit and uh, they regain it. So they are, are always on this yo-yo uh, pattern of regaining and, uh, losing the weight and which actually makes it a lot worse or it makes it more difficult to lose the weight in the future uh, so like this uh, ballooning up and down all the time that makes it much harder for like hormonally as well as your kind of fat cells don't really you know disappear they only shrink and uh, expand so uh, yeah like this constantly like bulking or maybe not even bulking but yeah like yo-yo dieting itself is a very you know harmful for long-term uh, weight loss yeah, 100% agree, man. I mean, 
like the concepts in the book are applicable, whether you're stepping on stage or not, because I think, you know, for my clientele basis, one of the most common trends I see is people just chronically restricting for far too long. Uh, and that definitely has a negative effect on their hormonal levels, their metabolic rate. Uh, so really kind of in changing the conversation, because everybody talks about how to get leaned out, have six pack abs, but nobody really talks about the reverse of that, which is having a healthy reverse diet and being at maintenance or a slight surplus for quite some time. So I'm really trying to shift the conversation to talk about that quite a bit because there's not really many people talking about it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the concept of reverse dieting. Uh, I think, you know, many people may not be aware of that. So can you like explain it, what it is and how does you, how do you do it? Yeah. So reverse dieting is just as it sounds, it's the reverse of dieting. So mostly people think of dieting as, you know, cutting calories, losing body fat, reverse dieting is simply increasing calories and not so much with the intention of putting on body fat, but you will probably put on a little bit of body fat just kind of comes to the territory of eating more food. Um, but ideally, allowing yourself to, to increase your intake, eating at a slight surplus is going to upregulate your metabolic pathways. When you think of, you know, cutting down and dieting and you're decreasing calories, you know, our metabolism is very adaptable. It's going to depress as a natural result of that lower intake. So the reverse is true as well. Like if you start increasing your intake, your metabolism is going to improve as well. And then you're going to be in a better position to add more lean muscle tissue while being in a caloric surplus, having more lean tissue is going to improve your metabolic rate too. Uh, so basically just having time where you're eating more you're building more, you're adding more lean tissue, minimizing any unnecessary fat gain. And that basically just puts you in a much better position to do a future cut, you know, at some point in the, in the future. Mm. Is there like any specific, <clears throat> like a, when can you begin like a reverse diet is there any like uh, optimal time to do it or like because i would imagine if you have only lost let's say i don't know 10 pounds of weight then you don't need a reverse diet probably <laughs> yeah so a lot of people like if you're chronically restricting like a lot of middle-aged you know women come to me and they've been dieting for the past 30 years like they're a really good candidate for a reverse diet somebody that just finished a, a strict cut or a competition prep they're a good candidate for a reverse diet a lot of people out there just eat way too much so they obviously don't need a reverse diet but if you've been chronically restricting i would say that your body would benefit from that um and it doesn't have to be like a crazy yo-yo extreme like i'll typically stay within about 15 to 20 pounds of my stage weight and my comp and my building phase weight like right now i'm sitting at about 180 pounds I competed about 160. So there's 20 pounds difference there. Um, there's no need to have these massive shifts from, you know, 50 pounds or more between your leanest and your heaviest. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to reverse dieting, just simply increasing your intakes so that you're slightly above maintenance, ideally, uh, making sure you're getting ample protein in and then enough calories to fuel your workouts and your training in general. Uh, that's kind of where I like to spend the majority of my time. Yeah. And how, um, how gradual should the process be? Like how many calories should you increase uh, or like maybe once a week or how often do you increase them? So honestly, that, that's a largely up to personal preference. I've got some clients that want to get back to some degree of normalcy right after a competition. So they'll try to do a pretty aggressive increase. Now with that, they'll probably put on a little bit more body fat sooner. Uh, I've got another client uh, as, a, as a case study and she was just really adamant about reverse setting incredibly slowly, um, which most people don't want to do because they've been dieting for so long anyways they, they want to kind of return to some degree of normalcy but she was adamant about doing that so we did and we went incredibly slow like we only increased you know sometimes only 15 20 calories a week um so it took quite some time to get back up to her maintenance but in doing so she was able to to maintain her level of conditioning for months and months and months post show which is pretty uncommon and then basically by, what happened is because we went so slowly her body's homeostatic set point from a compositional standpoint was set at a pretty lean level. So uh, she was able to eat more while maintaining that lean conditioning, you know, for quite some time. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the goal that many people may have this concept of dieting, which means that, you know, they eat as little as possible for as long as they can and lose the weight. And then they'll, you know, stop and then they'll, they'll stop the diet and they'll return to normal eating and uh, somehow the weight stays off which isn't the case because you know there is like the there's some metabolic adaptation that occurs and you're you know you're crashing your hormones and your metabolic rate by being very restrictive so yeah like it's actually much smarter or you know i mean not smarter even like you know it's kind of crucial to actually <clears throat> instead of like crash dieting and being on this like very restrictive diet it's actually much you know better 
to be like you know gradual with the calorie reduction and then gradual with reintroducing the calories as well uh which yeah, yeah many people may just you know i don't know maybe they would just you know have this i don't know pop culture idea of dieting which entails eating like you know lettuce or celery sticks only and uh, drinking water and uh, for a few days which like i think like models do or something so yeah they have like this kind of different or pop culture idea about dieting but in reality it's kind of completely different that you have to be very like gradual with everything that you do with the calories yeah 100 man i mean like bodybuilding in itself is a very extreme sport but the actual protocol that i'd like to implement when it comes to dieting down for show and reverse dieting is pretty sustainable by most people's standards like i'm tracking everything i'm very strict with my intake but i'm not doing any crazy you know like protein sparing modified fast where you're only eating 500 calories a day or anything like that. Like I want it to be healthy and sustainable for the long haul. Um, and I'll implement some, you know, strategic refeeds both at the end of the cut and in the beginning of the reverse diet, but those are ketogenic refeeds, like a bolus of carbohydrates. So I'm able to accomplish what I'm wanting to accomplish by simply increasing my total intake for the, the day with a specific meal. Um, but those are also very measured and implemented with purpose. Uh, and having that refeed is something to look forward to kind of helps make the whole process that much more sustainable as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've never like done like a reverse diet per se, but I have used definitely like the refeed days, uh, which uh, I think are very, you know, both like mentally maybe can be useful for some people, uh, but physically yeah, like I do notice like, if I have been, you know, somewhat restrictive with the calories of I've had like a few days or like a few weeks of being on a lower calorie intake, then um, I do know or things will naturally like slow down a little bit, like your thyroid and leptin will decrease in that process because of the energy restriction. And then having like a small, like not like massive, like 10K calorie intake or nothing like that, but right. like maybe like even like even like maintenance calories or slightly above the maintenance, like a thousand calories above or 500 calories above the maintenance is enough to usually, yeah, like boost up those uh, hormones again. And uh, you actually, I mean, in some cases, I've, you know, lost weight actually after those, even though I've eaten in a surplus for that day. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I've had several clients that it's it's totally counterintuitive. You would think that you would wake up and step on the scale and weigh five pounds more, but I've had several clients that that weigh in less the following day, following days after refeed. And I think a lot of it is the the metabolic adaptations that boost uh, that you're getting from that in, intake. But also, I think from a simply from a stress standpoint, like your body is kind of returning to a, a parasympathetic state for a time being there. So you're probably going to flush out some extra water weight with and you know inflammation retention there. So lots of benefits that come from having that strategic boost in calories mm. and you mentioned that you're doing it with uh keto or staying in keto uh mm. what's the, what's the like are there any i don't know hierarchies of what should the calories come from or the macros of those calories so i'm all about optimizing for nutrient density especially when in a deficit like if i'm in a deficit i want to make sure that every calorie that i am consuming is providing some you know useful benefit to my body. Um, so I'm not making up my diet with pop tarts and Twinkies or anything. It's, it's going to be, uh, you know, good quality animal-based foods. Um, I'll have the keto brick. I'll pretty much have a keto brick every single day of my, my prep. Cause I like that as a fat source and it gives me some, uh, something to look forward to, but most of my calories are coming from, you know, ground beef, some ruminant, uh, meat. Usually, um, I'll have, you know, whole eggs in there. I'll have some sardines or something like that in there. I'll have some some beef suet. One one thing I did with my last prep that I took pride in was that uh, I'm a, I'm an avid hunter as well. So some of my calories were coming from venison that I had killed the year prior. So I had some wild game meat with every meal. Uh, so really just prioritizing nutrient dense foods. That the the foods the calories that I am consuming are of the highest you know mineral quality that I can possibly provide. Nice. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, you are getting like would it matter though that much like what it where, where does the uh let's say biggest effect on the thyroid and the leptin come from like um it, because if you are you know eating even like it's like not that nutrient dense food because you're getting more calories and like quantities more of it you're still getting like plenty of uh or you're still meeting all the nutrient requirements as well even if it's like per 100 grams it may be less nutrient dense but per you know a thousand grams uh or per two thousand calories you're still getting adequate amounts of nutrients or because like you know from a like a thyroid and leptin standpoint i think that calories maybe like even in in that scenario could be even uh, more important 
Yeah, and I think honestly, you know, a big differentiating factor between my protocol and what is commonly used in the sport of bodybuilding is that I left my dietary fat much, much higher throughout my prep. And I feel like that had a massive impact, positive impact on my hormone levels, leptin and ghrelin, things of that nature. Then like you see most people dieting down with hardly any dietary fat and really high protein. Uh, and then depending on where they're at, they'll have higher or lower carbs. Uh, and protein is great for sure. But I feel like by minimizing your dietary fat intake, you're going to wreak havoc on your hormones and your, your hunger signals a lot more so than if you are able to maintain a relatively higher fat intake. Mm. Yeah, yeah, true. And uh, you, you've uh, done all these shows uh, on this, um, basically being in ketosis as well. And you actually like restrict protein, which is somewhat like a very <laughs> unorthodox uh, idea in bodybuilding. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny one, man, because most bodybuilders, they'll keep protein super high because they're trying to be as muscle sparing as possible. I mean, when you're in a cut for a competition, your goal is not really to build muscle. I mean, you're going to build muscle in the building phase when you're in a caloric surplus. When you're in a cut, the primary goal is to, to lose as much that or lose as much fat as possible while preserving as much you know muscle tissue as possible. And the traditional wisdom has been keep protein incredibly high so that you can preserve as much muscle tissue as possible. But what I've found is that, you know, when you keep uh, dietary fat relatively high and you, you're having a lower amount of protein because you are keeping that dietary fat high and those calories have to come from somewhere, the, the uh, muscle sparing effect of being in a deeper state of ketosis and the benefits from a hormonal standpoint of having higher dietary fat, both with testosterone and all the other hormones, to me, what I've found is that that far outweighs the muscle preserving effects of just simply having higher protein in general. Mm -hmm. even with calories equated for. Gotcha. What do you think of, and that goes to probably credit to the anti-catabolic effects of ketone bodies. But yeah, then, and I think honestly, from the hormone standpoint as well, I mean, like testosterone is going to be, like when you think about uh, preserving lean muscle tissue, you want to continue to demand, you know, your, your muscles to work and train hard with intensity that you've done up to that point. Uh, if you start cutting calories and it does become harder to train intensive, but if you start cutting in the intensity of your workouts, your body's going to recognize that there's a void there. And in an attempt to, you know, maintain some sense of, uh, metabolic homeostasis, you're going to start tapping into your lean tissue and become catabolic. However, if you continue to preserve, uh, or if you continue to demand your muscles do that work through continually training hard and intense in the context of a deficit, you're going to be in a more muscle preserved state. Uh, and if you're tanking your hormones, if your testosterone is bottomed out because you're not having any dietary fat, it's going to be very hard to train hard uh, and continue to demand that of your muscles. So I think the anti-catabolic effect of ketone bodies for sure is a contributing factor, but then also by having more dietary fat, more energy coming in uh, and be able to keep those hormones in a state in a healthy you know, baseline, you're going to be able to train harder. And that in itself is going to allow you to preserve more muscle as well. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because the training probably is the most important uh, signal uh, yeah. for maintaining muscle, especially in a calorie deficit, uh, yeah. and which I think many people tend, like average people, uh, may also yeah like neglect, especially if they're losing weight. Then you know the go-to exercises like jogging or cardio to lose weight. Um, but yeah, like especially if you're dieting and losing weight and you're in a calorie deficit, then the resistance training uh, is far by far more important again in the long-term aspect because you know if you do a cardio and you're in a calorie deficit you're gonna lose weight but you'll also lose muscle and uh just just by virtue of not uh, lifting anything you'll lose muscle and that again like in the future you're gonna have just a lower metabolic rate and less muscle which makes it harder again to maintain it and you're probably gonna regain the weight yeah exactly and like when i was doing you know carbohydrate based protocols back in the day I would keep protein really high and I'd have my fat very low and I would notice much, much more loss of muscle than I do now. Uh, and I've kind of gone the extreme to this, like back in the day, I would consume 350 grams plus of protein and I would see pretty drastic drops in all of my lifting uh, markers. You know, my deadlift would drop, my squat would drop, like all these markers would decrease because I'm losing, you know, muscle mass. Uh, whereas now I don't, I mean, it definitely gets harder to train that with that degree of intensity in the end of a cut, um, that, that's going to be the same across the board, regardless of the diet, but I don't really experience any significant drop in total volume or, uh, you know, weight that I'm able to move. Like my deadlift doesn't drop. My, my squats don't really drop at the end of a cut with this ketogenic approach, even though I'm consuming far, far less protein. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. 
and how, how little protein did you eat <laughs> or at the shows before the shows? So I, I taper it gradually. There's a period of my protocol where I'll actually be increasing protein. And there's a part where I start decreasing protein. Uh, during my 2017 prep, I went as low as 65 grams of protein a day, which I don't recommend. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like most people need to go that low. That's the um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's not, but I was kind of really pushing the envelope to see what the extremes were. But even at only 65 grams, I wasn't really losing any muscle. And that was a very, very finite period of time. Like I'm consuming much more protein than that on average. But for that very specific period of time, I was consuming that little. Um, and then I think with my last prep, I want to say I got as low as about 100 grams. So I have to go back and look at my spreadsheet, but something something around that marker, uh, which again, most of my other competitors uh, that are competing against me, they're consuming 250, 300 grams and I'm consuming you know, a hundred, so much less protein, yet I'm not losing near as much lean tissue uh, or strength throughout my cut as they are. Mm. Yeah. Well, what do you think that is? Like, uh, what is the biggest reason, uh, let's say, yeah, this difference is? Probably because of the, the hormonal implications that come from having very, very little dietary fat and then also less energy. I mean, when, when competitors are, um, you know, when they're, when they're following a carbohydrate-based protocol, they're getting their energy from carbohydrates. Um, and then at times they have very little carbohydrate intake because they're cutting calories. So at that point, they're just simply leaving protein very high. And protein is not a great substrate for energy. Like you can make energy through gluconeogenesis, but it's not a premier substrate for energy. So that's why most competitors are walking around like zombies the last month and a half of their show prep because they don't have good energy coming in. They don't have hardly any dietary fats. Their hormones are tanked and they're just suffering. It's still hard with my protocol with a ketogenic approach, but I found it to be much more sustainable for me, uh, certainly. And I've had pretty good success with it with my clients. And, and these, many of these clients have done both protocols. They've done carbohydrate based protocols. They've done you know, this ketogenic approach. And if you're fat adapted, I feel like it's just a really, really good way to go about preserving lean tissue and staying in a healthy state throughout the course of a prep. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, if I were to be on a, yeah, like a very low calorie intake, which is required for getting like super lean and stage lean is required. Then I would, yeah, would prefer to be in a, like a fat adapted ketogenic state as well. Um, totally. I think like probably like when you're in like calorie abundance or calorie maintenance, then for me at least, um, I prefer like the carb side a little bit more uh, because I feel like, yeah, the somehow like the leptin or the thyroid levels are a bit uh, elevated because you know, I'm, I'm like carbs are pro uh, t3 for sure like they do help with that uh, t3 but i think that is because of you know depends on what what fuel your body is running on so if your mm -hmm. body's keto adapted and your ketones then probably the thyroid will still detect the energy abundance in the presence of those ketones and if you are you know <laughs> you're basically tapped into your own body fat by being in ketosis then you're never really being um, or the body doesn't detect that it is in this uh, super deprived or restricted state whereas if you are um, not keto adapted and uh, you are and it's restricted then that kind of threshold at which you start to experience metabolic adaptation is also comes also much sooner because your body can't use the ketones and fat that efficiently uh, yeah I, I feel like you know there's definitely a difference i mean when i'm in a surplus like I stay in a ketogenic state, you know, even when I'm in a surplus, but my ketones are definitely lower when I'm in a surplus. Uh, my glucose baseline is a little bit higher. Um, I'm not eating carbohydrates then, but I'm still definitely consuming, you know, ample energy. Uh, and my, my surplus is significant. So my body recognizes that, uh, you know, I'm not in a uh, sympathetic, you know, fasted or, uh, you know, deficit state. So I'm able to build more tissue while in that surplus, even though I'm not having the carbohydrates, but yeah, I think you're totally around the money there. I feel like either way, regardless of the diet you're following, you, you definitely need to be in a surplus for optimal building tissue. Mm, yeah. Um, but uh, maybe let's uh, briefly touch upon the aspect of dieting as well, not just the reverse dieting. Um, so to be, to be clear, like, you know, it is true. I think both of us agree that you still need to be in a calorie deficit <laughs> to lose weight, even on like, keto. And, yeah. um, and, uh, this, you know, many people also get or do it wrong in some sense that, you know, they either crash super hard or they're not really ever in a calorie deficit by actually eating more calories than they think they are. So, um, like any, yeah, like how do you structure this process of, you know, 
you start at your let's say current body weight and you have this goal how would you go about uh yeah let's say let's say you only have like you know maybe 15 pounds to lose how would you go about uh achieving that yeah so you're absolutely right there's a lot of people in the keto space that are under the assumption that calories don't count and uh you don't need to cut calories to to lose weight and that's just not the case i mean you're, you're depend regardless of the diet you're following you're, you're going to need to manipulate your energy intake like it all matters um, so like for me and my clientele, when I'm doing a competition prep or just a, a weight loss, you know, cut in general fat loss phase, um, I'll typically find their maintenance intake and then I'll start them at a relatively high fat ratio. So about 80% of their calories coming from dietary fat at that maintenance intake. And that's basically just designed to ramp up their level of fat adaptation, fat metabolism at the onset when they're at a maintenance intake. From there, I'll start gradually dropping their dietary fat while simultaneously increasing their dietary protein. Um, and basically that my goal there is to figure out their unique protein threshold. Um, and then in doing that, I'm dropping their total calories because there's more calories in fat than protein. So as I drop their fat and increase protein, their total calories are going to continue to drop. Once I establish that protein threshold, which for most people is illustrated by some GI distress, some brain fog, maybe some more inflammation, aches and pains in their knees and things of that nature, um, or they just start, they'll not feel optimal. Uh, I'll start dropping their protein as well. So at that point, both fat and protein are dropping. Again, total calories are going to continue to drop this entire time. Uh, and then once I start to kind of get really lower on their intake at that point, I'll start implementing these strategic ketogenic caloric refeeds. And I'll typically have those once or twice a week, depending on how their body responds. And I'll start with about a 30% increase over their baseline caloric intake. Uh, and that, that surge in calories is going to come from just additional fat and protein. And then that offers that metabolic uh, benefit, that hormonal benefit, and that psychological benefit of simply having higher intake to look forward to, make the whole process more sustainable. And then we'll just keep doing that for another you know, few weeks, depending on how much time they have left, how much uh, weight they have less, left to lose. And then that pretty much winds up being the, the apex or the, uh, the, the deepest point of their caloric intake for the cut. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, how much like a calorie deficit do you think is safe in that sense? Like, uh, usually they say like, you know, 500 calorie deficit per day is a good one or you, you should do that. Uh, but what do you think about deficits of, I don't know, a thousand, even more than that? So, so for context, my maintenance intake is right at about 3000 calories. I'm consuming about 3000 calories a day currently. When I get in a cut for a prep, the lowest I wind up going is about 1,600. Uh, for most of my female clientele, I don't really ever take them beneath 1,300. Um, you know, the, like some of the people have their clients going way below 1,000, which I think is just unnecessary, uh, not healthy, and not sustainable. So I'll never really take my clients that low. I never take my clients that low. Uh, if you do things right, you don't really need to go that low. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll typically go, you know, for me again, about as 1600 is about as low as I'll go. And then I'll start reverse dieting up from there. Gotcha. Uh, and, uh, what about, uh, like meal frequency like how many meals do you think is good uh, or recommended? So I'm doing about two or three meals a day at a maintenance or surplus. And then as the calories drop, I'll transition those to you know, a tighter feeding window. Uh, so like when I get below about 1900 calories, I'll transition to OMAD simply because I like, I find it to be more satiating that to eat one large meal that actually fills me up than multiple smaller meals that always leave me wanting more. So I'll typically do that OMAD approach once I get beneath about 1900 calories. Um, and at that point, you know, I prefer anyway, because I used to do the six or seven meals a day. I'd, I'd walk around everywhere with Tupperware and it just wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable. You know, like I like to be productive and walking around with Tupperware and always looking at the clock to figure out what my next meal is. It's just not really enjoyable to me. So having one big meal to look forward to actually feeling, you know, satisfied after that meal and then just going right back into it is, is beneficial for me psychologically, but also you get the benefits from a, you know, longer fasting window there as well. Mm, yeah, I agree. I also like that. Um, it's kind of yeah, convenient or you do like enjoy maybe like a larger meal mm -hmm. when you are in a calorie deficit and you notice it more like a satiety side because it's, it's relatively easy to not feel, let's say that you're dieting or not feel that you're uh, restricted or deprived during like the fasted window like as long as you you know fast or something you you you're fine you're able to kind of push through that a little bit 
but once you when you eat and the meal is like unsatisfying or it's too small then that's where kind of a lot of the cravings and uh urge to eat more comes in so like up until the point to eat is actually you're fine but when you eat it and it's not like it's, it doesn't like you know satisfy you uh then uh, that's where you start to actually get hungrier uh, whereas if you are getting a meal that is you know ease fully satisfied and um you know suppresses your hunger even if it's you know only like uh, let's say 1500 calories then uh yeah you're fine after that if it's yeah it's way better to eat one big meal that's 1500 calories that like you're excited about you see it on the plate like oh that's a pretty good bit of food right there let's dive in as opposed to you know six or seven meals that are like 250 calories each you know it's like two two spoonfuls yeah yeah uh but uh, how do you uh, do you have like any strategies during the day to uh, suppress the appetite or what do you do Honestly, man, I just stay super busy. Like I've got multiple businesses that I'm running on podcasts and I'm, I've got employees, like I'm working out, I'm, I'm doing all kinds of things anyway. So staying busy helps a lot with not letting my mind focus on food, uh, but then having that one big meal to look forward to. And then depending on when I'm training, I'll typically have that meal, uh, you know, within about two hours out of training, I prefer to train in the morning. So I'll typically train and then have that large meal within about two hours after that. Um, and then I'm right back at it and then I get that meal done and then I no longer think about it. Um, you know, like if you have multiple meals a day and you're constantly checking your watch or the clock on the wall to figure out when that next meal is, you're, you're just constantly thinking about food and that is exhausting in and of itself. Um, whereas if you just have that one big meal and then you know you're done until the next day, you're no longer thinking about food because you know it's going to be 24 hours until your next meal. So then you just don't think about it all the time. And I think that in itself, from a psychological standpoint, makes the diet much more sustainable. Mm, yeah. Do it in coffee or water or anything? Yeah, yeah. I'll do the, the coffee. I'll do the water, um, sparkling water. Um, and I'll, I'll put a little bit of, of like cream or something in my coffee. So that's technically not a fasted time there. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's you know, pretty negligible amount of you know heavy cream or something of that nature. So um, that just makes it tastier, you know, and I like, I like uh, a little heavy cream in my coffee as opposed to black coffee. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, what matters is that you're in a calorie deficit for the rest of the day, uh, especially if your goal is the uh, body composition and weight loss. Uh, so yeah, like even if you have like something that has, I mean, you could even have like a protein shake during the day. And as long as you're still in the calorie deficit, then it still meets your goals in that scenario. Um, yeah. whether, whether or not it's gonna like enable you to achieve the calorie deficit is maybe subjective but i think most people yeah would be you know yeah like maybe people get like too i don't know mi micromanaging about uh milk in their coffee or something like that uh, but in reality yeah like it doesn't really matter at that point yeah totally i mean you're getting a lot of the benefits of fasting just by simply being in a deficit so i'm not doing a fast for you know sell apoptosis when I'm in a competition prep. Like I'm just trying to optimize for fat loss. So like, I'm not trying to cure cancer uh, when I'm in a cut. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm in that deficit. So however I can strict structure my, my meals. And honestly, like if I'm having my coffee with heavy cream in the morning, training within a few hours of that, and then eating within a few hours of that, like it's all still within a relatively close, you know, window. Mm, yeah. Um, let's talk about training as well. So uh, how long have you been uh, listening for or working out? Probably about 2008, I think. I believe I started as a junior in high school, sophomore, junior in high school. So uh, quite some time with the lifting. And I started out not knowing what I was doing, man. Like I had a uh, rudimentary gym that I built. I was using like pieces of steel and tractor equipment that I had laying around the house. Uh, and then just built out my own gym and then graduated to go into a you know public commercial gym. And then now we've got our own building. So we've got our own gym here. Um, and I just love it, man. Like it's it's my therapy for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think also like one of my favorite hobbies to do. And um, I don't know, yeah, something very, um, I mean, it's a, a very good form of just, you know, self-actualization or self-development uh, in that sense, uh, both physically and mentally and everything else, like work ethic and like lifting kind of teaches you almost every <laughs> required skill that you need to have for being successful or, you know, doing whatever um it's just that most people maybe don't apply it or in, in that uh, or they don't carry it over to their everyday life or or whatnot or oh, or okay. vice versa they may be like super disciplined but they don't apply the same discipline to their let's say health and fitness <laughs> yeah i mean when i look at what i've accomplished in life you know like bodybuilding taught me how to be a hard worker taught me how to be dis disciplined consistent uh dedicated i mean all all of these good character traits came from my endeavors of bodybuilding and then i was able to transfer that to 
my relationships, um, you know, my, my business endeavors. So I owe a lot to, to the, the life skills that I've learned from bodybuilding for sure. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what, what it would be like, maybe, I don't know, some big mistakes people usually make is they're not seeing results with uh, lifting weights, weights. And like, let's say not seeing um, mostly like strength gains, let's say what, what is the issue there? Honestly, a lot of it's just probably not eating enough. Like if they're not in the surplus, uh, they, they're not going to optimize their ability to build more muscle tissue. Uh, and they're honestly not like if they're not training hard enough, like if they're not giving their body reason to grow uh, from some hormetic response to that stimulus, they're not going to see the success they're looking for either. So um, training hard, training intensely, implementing progressive overload principles and eating enough food. I mean, that, that's like the, the bare bones basics of how to build more tissue. Uh, good tissue. So making sure they're training hard enough and eating enough is key. Um, and then a lot of people will try and track that. They'll track total volume. They'll track their their max lifts. They'll make sure that, that needle's moving forward. Um, but those would probably be the, the main hitters. Yeah, I think many people just you know go to the gym, uh, but they're not really you know seeing any changes. Probably because they're like you know not. <laughs> progressing in their uh, workouts so they're kind of doing the same things all the time uh, they're not progressing in the weight they lift or the the sets or the reps or whatever they're just you know going through the motions and not there needs to be because their biggest you know reason why your body grows in terms of muscle and you know, strength as well is like progressive overload so you need to uh, increase the uh, weight that you lift uh, or the tension that you apply to the muscles in order to uh, keep making them adapt and keep making progress yeah, totally. And it's really easy to kind of fall into this habit of just becoming complacent, going to the gym and going through the motions, like you say, but, you know, having, having a plan, having a strategy and, and tracking that to make sure things are moving in the right direction over time is, is absolutely key. And honestly, making sure you get good form and recovery too. Like if you're training really, really intensely, but then you're not giving your body what it needs to recover properly, you're only selling yourself short. So making sure you're getting good quality sleep, making sure you're getting enough food, enough nutrients, um, and then doing some mobility work to make sure that you're staying injury free is, is paramount. Mm. So you're more like a free weights guy, right? Than a machine guy. Yeah. I like, I like, I mean, most of my gym equipment is free weights. Um, we, we do have some cable. I like cables for sure, but, uh, most of my stuff is free weights, uh, you know, barbells, dumbbells, uh, with some cable work as well. I do like certain machines because you're able to isolate things a little bit better with that and then really focus on a specific, you know, muscle component if you want. Uh, but yeah, most of mine is free weights. Mm. Yeah, I think the m majority of like mm, effort should still be on like the free weights, like the main compound lifts and uh, the machines and uh, cables. And uh, yeah, they're also very good for isolating and uh, maybe fixing some imbalances, etc. But yeah, I think uh, the average person tends to also focus too much on just progressing at the leg extensions or uh, progressing at the uh, uh, whatever triceps push pushdowns instead of progressing at the, the bench press or the uh, squat, which yeah. the majority of your gains are going to come from the main compound lifts in terms of uh, muscle growth and the overall, yeah. overall body strength as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't track every little auxiliary lift that I do. I'm pretty much just tracking, you know, progress with my primary compound movements. So my squats, deadlift, bench press, overhead press, sumo deadlifts, things of that nature. If those are all moving in the right direction, then I can feel pretty confident that I'm getting strong all over because those are the compound movements. Um, so yeah, like I'll track those, make sure that I'm getting heavier, lifting more volume, getting stronger with each of those movements. And that's, that's, that's my primary proxy for progress. Hmm. And, uh, the rep schemes, uh, which ones do you, I mean, there's like, you know, five by five, three by eight, probably some other ones uh, that <laughs> I usually do either or, or those two. Uh, what is your, yeah, like um, philosophy or ideas about how many reps, how many sets, how much volume? I mean, kind of old school in that regard, like most of my lifts, I'm sticking around four sets of eight to 12 reps. Um, with my primary compound movements, I'll start adding in more sets to stay at, you know, if I'm trying to really push the envelope and go heavier, um, I'll do like sets of six reps, for instance, and I'll just continue to increase the weight until I can no longer get six reps, six quality reps. So, you know, that may mean, that may mean 13 or 14 sets of squats, for instance, if I'm, if I'm increasing by, you know, 50 pounds with each set or something of that nature. Um, so I'll do something like that, um, until I can no longer get those quality reps. And then I'll, you know, sometimes I'll do like a, 
uh, like I'll, I'll do a drop set. I'll cut that weight in half and then burn out at that. I'll, I'll try and implement some of intensity factors like drop sets, supersets, uh, negatives, forced reps, things of that nature to continue to push the envelope, even if I can't lift more total weight. Uh, plus it just keeps things interesting as well. Mm -hmm. And how often you train per week? Usually? Uh, I train usually about six days per week. Uh, depends on what split I'm doing. I'm, I'm usually either doing, you know, six days of training, um, over the course of a seven day period, or sometimes I'll do like an eight day cycling, which I train six days for that eight day window. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of mix and match that just depending on, you know, if I'm traveling a lot at that time or not. Uh, but normally about six days a week. Mm, yeah. Well, that's pretty awesome. I know all of them are at the gym or. Yeah. Yeah. Normally at the gym. I mean, uh, I'm lucky because our gym here is, is in the same building that my podcast studio is in, which is, you know, just, just a short drive from my house. I've pretty much got everything under my own roof, which is nice. Um, I probably need to get with you and talk about like some biohacking stuff. Cause I want to get like a cold plunge and a sauna and all that good stuff here as well. Um, uh, but, but that, that'll be down the road. Mm, yeah. I do doing like cardio or uh, would you like, how would you utilize cardio for you know, muscle growth as well as uh, weight loss? So with cardio, I like to treat it as like a minimum viable dose. A lot of people just do way too much cardio and their metabolism and their body kind of sets at that higher level. So that you have to add even more to get a response. Um, so I like to treat cardio as like a minimum viable dose. I do minimal cardio in the building phase. And then when I start a cutting phase, I'm able to incrementally increase it week after week because I started at such a little intake to begin with. Um, and for cardio, I'll typically do something that's easy to measure and manipulate like Stairmaster, for instance. Um, and then with, with cardio in the building phase, like my main goal there is to just ensure that I've got good cardiovascular health and conditioning so that my weight training doesn't suffer. Like if you're not doing any cardio to the point of you're having a very poor cardiovascular system and you're getting winded after, you know, two reps of squats, then you're not really going to be able to maximize your resistance training potential. So ensuring that I've got a good baseline with cardio in the off season, but then really kind of dialing that up throughout the cutting phase is key. Mm. I think you did a marathon, right? Uh, and completely fasted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, did a marathon, fasted. I, I'm not a runner by trade at all. Like I, I did it just to prove that I could because I was getting a lot of flack from people saying that I couldn't do a marathon without eating carbs. So I just did one with zero training, fasted just to show otherwise. Uh, I actually just finished doing a 50-mile march this past week uh, in Omaha for raising money for veterans. Uh, and that was pretty brutal, 50 miles straight marching. That's honestly harder than the marathon. Um, but, uh, but I do some of these endurance sports. I, I do a lot of hiking when I'm out hunting. Um, but for the most part, I'm definitely not an endurance athlete. Hmm. And how, how does it, you know, if you aren't used to that, how do you feel while doing that? Because I you know many like gym guys and, uh, powerlifters, especially and bodybuilders, they're not really uh, very keen on doing cardio <laughs> and they may struggle uh, doing that. So what was your experience? Uh, in that honestly man, i felt great like from a fueling standpoint from an energy standpoint from a, uh you know how that affects my body like that that doesn't really phase me at all like i feel fine doing it my my achilles heel so to speak is my feet like i've got really bad feet i'm overpronated. i've got flat feet so my feet don't have the conditioning to put that many miles on them uh, but from like a fueling standpoint i always feel totally fine like when i did this 50 mile march um, I was pretty much fasted apart from a whole keto brick, had a break throughout the course of that 22 hour March uh, with the marathon. I didn't really have anything other than, you know, some pickle juice and some electrolytes. So not really anything, no issues at all from a fueling standpoint. My thing is just conditioning my feet to be able to put those miles in. Mm, nice. Yeah. I think like your blisters and stuff. Did you ever get those kind of things? Yeah. I mean, blisters, I mean, my feet were torn up from blisters last time this past year, or this, this past week when I did the 50 mile March, uh, I didn't actually have any blisters, which was a, a huge upgrade from, from the year prior. Uh, I think the, uh, my saving grace where there was that I used those toe socks, which looked kind of funky, but those kept my toes from rubbing. And then I used, uh, this, like, a like a balm, like a, it's called salty britches, but it's like a, a rub, like an old based balm. And you just simply rub that over your feet and keeps things from chafing as well. Mm, yeah yeah i think yeah the, the blisters and the, the rub and those kind of things usually are the ones that will get you more than yeah. uh, the actual physical uh physical tiredness or exhaustion totally uh, yeah uh but how much you know how would you with cardio you mentioned the yeah, not going all out immediately when you're dieting 
So, um, yeah, how would you, what would be some good signs that you need to either, you know, increase the cardio or decrease it? Or is there any like reverse dieting with cardio or reverse cardio? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, uh, like I like to think of cardio and calories as having an inverse relationship. So when I'm dieting down to lose body fat and my, my calories are slowly decreasing, my cardio is slowly increasing. So um, most of the, the changes that are happening physically are going to happen from the dietary manipulations. But then if my body starts to plateau from those nutritional manip manipulations, then I can easily, you know, add a little bit to the cardio. So like if I'm using Stairmaster, for instance, I may start with only doing 10 minutes of the Stairmaster at level five once a week. Uh, but then the next week I might do 10 minutes at level six once a week. And then maybe I'll increase the time to 12 minutes, or then maybe I'll increase the frequency to two times a week. But being able to have those, those levers that I can pull to slowly increase the intensity of the cardio training keeps my body, you know, being subjected to some type of stressor from a cardio standpoint so that I can keep things moving in the right direction and minimize those plateaus. Mm. Right. That's, that's good recommendation for sure. Um, I mean, some people like to do cardio. Most people don't. Uh, and it definitely can be very good so because like you know when you are dieting your options are either like eat less or move more you know mm -hmm. essentially so uh yeah and doing some cardio is uh i think worth it in terms of yeah just being able to eat more i think sometimes uh yeah just eating more or, or like moving more is probably a bit easier than eating less in a lot of cases like if you have to literally eat only like a thousand calories of like a, <laughs> this much of food uh then you're probably still going to suffer. Whereas suffering for like, you know, 30 minutes only on uh, the track uh, is probably much easier actually. Yeah, I totally agree, man. Like I would much rather jump on a Stairmaster for 20 minutes and it'd be a brutal Stairmaster session than to just have this gnawing hunger pain nonstop 24 hours a day. Mm. Yeah. And then there's also the fitness, fitness aspect, like cardio is also better for your health. Yeah, uh, and uh, long longevity than uh, although like you know calorie restriction obviously is very important, but I think that yeah cardiovascular fitness especially is also very uh, important for uh, you know preventing cardiovascular disease and uh, just living longer as well. Yeah, and if you get it down, then you don't really have to do that much cardio. I mean, like yeah. I'll never really go above twenty minutes uh, with my cardio at a time in a cut, and I, I don't want to do so much cardio that it is negatively impacting my resistance training as well, because I always going to prioritize resistance training. So these people that are doing two hours a day on the treadmill, but then having pretty terrible, you know, workout sessions, that's not really going to be the, the best bang for their buck from a training standpoint. So treating cardio as minimum viable dose, but then really maximizing the intensity of the weight training, and then just simply having the ability to scale up that cardio as needed is, is been what I found to be the most effective. Mm, yeah. Well, when I'm doing cardio and I think of cardio as like walking, I want to say walking on speed, but uh, what I mean is that walking, uh, like accelerated walking almost like walking mm -hmm. is going to be enough already to increase your calorie burn and uh, make you lose weight and put you in a calorie deficit, but it takes a long time. Like you would, you know, to see a significant uh, calorie burn from just walking and you have to walk like two hours or something um whereas with a uh, regular jogging even you can achieve the same calorie burn from yeah like 45 minutes or something so it's kind of yeah. a more compressed time frame uh where you get the benefits faster in terms of the calorie and the weight loss side so oh. um, yeah it's like you know you could do walking for two hours or just do the cardio for 30 or 45 minutes and uh get those benefits um and i'm never yeah, like really trying to you know increase the intensity of the cardio that much that it would yeah begin to interfere with my weight training or something because you can you can do cardio in a way that it does has that it has no like zero impact on your recovery from the weights by doing like maintaining a, like a lower intensity and staying in like a zone two or zone three at uh, most so yeah yeah i think that's key man like doing the, the you know list style cardio like some people like the hit and I, i'm totally fine with that but i prefer like a shortened concentrated you know window of list uh, cardio and then i'll typically do that after i weight train so that I can already have a good, you know, weight training session beforehand. And I'm not worried about that negatively impacting that at all. Mm, yeah. Uh, do you take, what kind of supplements do you take? Uh, are there any, like any protein shakes or creatine, anything like that? Yeah, creatine, that's pretty much it, man. Creatine and um, electrolytes, but I don't really do. I mean, occasionally I have a protein shake. Uh, there's protein powder in the keto brick, so I'll get it, you know, indirectly through that. Um, but I don't really do a ton of supplementation. I don't really do, um, 
hardly any, honestly. I mean, I, I'm in natural bodybuilding too. They're super strict on what you're allowed to take. So uh, I've got a pretty short list of what I'd even be able to anyway. So I don't really find much benefit in most of them. Some pre-workouts on occasion, but I've cut down my caffeine intake significantly. And I don't really want to become too dependent upon that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, if you are eating a nutrient-dense diet, then you are getting, you know, at least like all the vitamins and minerals you're getting from there. And uh, creatine is maybe something that even uh, even people who are eating a good diet could benefit from uh, in like some amounts. Because I mean, the research does suggest that it is, I think, one of the most effective and most <laughs> best uh, like sports performance supplement at least. And it also has like other longevity benefits, like good for the brain and good for the bones mm-hmm. and methylation and those kind of things and it's cheap it's effective um you know if you get it going that dissolves in your water there's no you know, taste to it really um and i mean you can't really even if you're eating a ton of meat which a lot of people are doing if they're following like a carnivore diet you still can't really get super physiological levels of creatine in your system just from your diet alone so supplementing yeah. with that makes sense for sure do you like load with creatine or do you just stick to a regular dose I just do five grams a day and like you can load, but I mean, if you're consistently taking in five grams a day, your muscles are going to stay saturated with it. So there's not really any need to do a loading phase. Mm. And I mean, the electrolytes, that's like regular salt or magnesium and potassium as well. Yeah. Sodium, potassium, magnesium. Usually I'll, I'll do about a two to one ratio of sodium to potassium. So uh, that's the kind of the, the intake that most people seem to respond best at. So I'll typically start people at about 4,000 milligrams of sodium, 2000 milligrams of potassium, and then upregulate from there based off of how their body responds. Uh, when I'm doing my ketogenic caloric refeeds, I'll kind of use those as trial refeeds for the peak week. And then on the, the day before the show, I'll have an even higher dose of sodium, um, sometimes upwards of you know eight grams a day. Uh, and that's basically designed to take any subcutaneous fluid that I have between my skin and my muscle tissue, draw that into the muscle so that the muscles appear fuller and the skin appears thinner and just increase overall vascularity for the show day itself. Mm, yeah, that's uh, quite, uh, I think, yeah, like a lot of the times the vascularity can also be like a huge or like yeah, pretty much the critical factor in terms of, at least on the shows, um, if you don't have vascularity, but you have, you know, you, you, you could even have like a ton of muscle, more muscle than other people, and you could even be leaner, but if you don't have the vascularity, then you're not probably not gonna place as well as someone who has maybe less muscle, uh, but they have more vascularity that because I mean, the vascularity kind of just makes it, I don't know, pop more and uh, tends to be like more aesthetically uh, place, places higher in that sense. Yeah. And that's honestly one, one disadvantage to all these traditional dieting methods for peak week is they'll have, you know, these carb loads, these massive carb loads, they'll do water depletion phases, water loading phases, sodium depletion phases. And they're, they're manipulating so many variables, many of which don't need to be manipulated. And if you don't time it just right with that, you run the risk of spilling over and having a lot more fluid exist in your subcutaneous layer of skin, which is going to basically wash out all of your definition. So a lot of these competitors work, you know, really hard for months and months and months. And then they simply don't do things properly with their electrolytes and their sodium levels, their water intake, and then they spill over and look worse on show day. And the the, the same is true in, in reverse, in which case I, I've competed with people who didn't time that properly and they were cramping so poorly on stage that they could not even do the poses, the mandatory poses, because their, their entire body was cramping up too much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really sad. You know, you work so hard and you can't even, you know, do the poses because of your electrolytes. Uh, causing cramping so you can bypass a lot of that by simply staying hydrated and doing very minor minimal tweaks to your electrolytes mm. Mm. and you don't restrict water either you just drink water. No, no i stay hydrated the full time through man i don't cut water at all mm. yeah <laughs> because yeah like, you don't tend to hold on to it uh, when you don't eat uh, carbs that much yeah you don't hold on to it and you want water i mean you want a ton of water in your body but you want it in the right places. Like the more water you have in your muscle tissue, the fuller your muscles are going to look. Um, which is why I don't cut creatine out, you know, right before the, the show either. Um, so, so making sure you've got water in the right spots, uh, but ideally not too much in the subcutaneous layer of skin. That's all going to come down to proper electrolyte manipulation, hydration levels, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Are there like any natural diuretics that can help? Like, I don't know, tea or... <laughs> Yeah, but honestly, I don't even do those either because, I mean, a lot of people will do the diuretics. And in in natural bodybuilding, they don't allow for any of the supplemental diuretics. 
you mm. could do like asparagus is one tea is one things of that nature but um i don't i don't want to have a dehydrating effect whatsoever so um i'll just time things such that and that sodium that i have the night before that bolus of sodium helps draw any of that subcutaneous fluid into the muscle tissue and that typically lasts for about you know 24 hours or so so if i time things right there I'm bringing that more enhanced look to the stage when it's time to step on stage and compete. Um, but that's why I've got all these trial refeeds in for the weeks leading up to the actual show day, because you can really kind of hone things in and figure out what your body individually responds best to. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, like one of the most impressive uh, things about your approach, as well as just, you know, bodybuilding overall is that how like meticulous you have to be sometimes with, you know, and like the process itself of knowing or having like every like every step of the way uh, calculated or known like how many calories you can eat etc and you know exactly like you know you wouldn't probably in the beginning of the diet you know like how many calories you're going to probably eat uh, four weeks from from that point and uh, what your training is going to look like and uh, how much salt you're going to take before the stage and those kind of things and so it's very <laughs> it's very, yeah like a natural bodybuilding overall and everything is just you know very I mean, many people don't appreciate how much like yeah, meticulousness and conscientious conscientiousness uh, goes into that <laughs> process. And they just, you know, hey, you're just like meatheads uh, standing on stage uh, uh, without, yeah, like knowing how much like effort actually goes in there in the back end. Yeah, it's very, very calculated. I mean, I, I've got everything dialed in um, and I, I just refine this every single time I go through a prep, every time I work with my clients, I'll see what works well for them, what works well for me. And I'll just get better and better with it every, you know, competition prep season that, that happens. Um, but I love it, man. It's definitely a science. It's an art form. Um, I just keep learning every single time I do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what if people don't, uh, have, you know, want to be weighing their calories, et cetera, like, what would you recommend, uh, for people to do if they, you know, want to lose weight, et cetera. Like how would they go about achieving the calorie deficit and how would they go about yeah, reverse dieting and those kind of things? I mean, you could do all these things uh, somewhat intuitively without weighing anything out. The problem is it's like, if you're trying to get to that level of conditioning, you can't really do that as intuitively because it's not, it's not intuitive to get that lean. Like yeah, that doesn't happen in nature. Like nobody gets that lean, uh, you know, at, at, at a whim. Um, so you kind of have to do extreme things to get to that level of extreme conditioning, but in, you know, a healthier window of, you know, a more moderate body fat percentage that that's kind of more on the average, you know, uh, sphere, you can certainly do that without becoming a slave to weighing everything out and, and tracking everything to the team. Um, I'm generally of the opinion that it's better to get to the goal the most efficient manner possible. And then you can kind of be more intuitive once you reach that goal, because it's easier to maintain that once you've reached it than it is to get there in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so I typically recommend people do track and, and weigh things and measure things, take a measured approach, reach that goal, and then kind of transition into more of an intuitive way of eating. Um, but for people that don't want to track at all, you can certainly do it. You just have to be mindful of it, like knowing, you know, roughly how much of how many calories you're in you know, eight ounces of ground beef, how much proteins in there, how much fats in there, just kind of knowing what those markers are. Um, you just simply having that knowledge is going to be super impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Many people don't even know how many calories there is. And for example, even beef or, um, I don't know, chicken uh, or fish, uh, broccoli, whatever. It's, I think it's quite important here yeah, for people to have like at least like a basic understanding of, you know, how much calories the food has. And then later, you don't necessarily have to weigh it, but at least, you know, you know, some uh, ballparks. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, really awesome to see that uh, you have now a book out as well. Like, I think it's going to be pretty much yeah, the best <laughs> Bible of uh, keto, ketogenic bodybuilding and definitely recommend people to check it out. Even if you're not on keto, I think uh, you can still learn a ton about uh, contest prep and uh, dieting and um, yeah, getting into that uh, best peak uh, leanness and uh, body composition uh, possible. Uh, so yeah, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people get the book and uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can get it on Amazon. Uh, and they can, I also built out a website for the book specifically. So that's just ketogenicbodybuilding.com. And then I, I basically this, the spreadsheet that I use for my own prep and my clients, I made that like a free downloadable spreadsheet that people that go to ketogenicbodybuilding.com can certainly access and use if they so choose. Awesome. And uh, your own like uh, social media. 
Yeah, so everything Keto Savage for me. So KetoSavage.com, Keto Savage on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all the social profiles. It's all just Keto Savage. Awesome. And uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes. My last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you adopted sooner? One piece of advice that I wish I'd have adopted sooner. One, one habit, huh? Um, shoot, man. I think uh, as it pertains to bodybuilding and business and all of that stuff, this sounds kind of cliche because you've all heard this, but honestly, just simply surrounding yourself with people that are at a level higher than you are in a realm, in an industry that you want to excel at. Um, it's really easy to be the biggest guy at the gym, the biggest fish in the pond if you limit your circle and your sphere of influence. But when I'm trying to level up in bodybuilding, when I'm trying to level up in business, when I'm trying to level up in life, I find people that are doing what I want to do at a higher level. And I just surround myself with them, find a way to offer value to them and then learn from them. So I think that that applies with whatever industry or whatever, whatever you want to excel at. But I think that would be the piece of advice that I would have put into action sooner in life for sure. Mm. Yeah, that's very good advice and like timeless advice almost. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, great. Uh, it's, it was awesome talking with you and catching up. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to your maybe next show. Sounds good to me, man. Always a pleasure chatting with you, brother. Take care and talk soon. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for this episode. Make sure to click a like and subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.